0: Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now.
1: Three people and you're going to have four weeks
2: do something. (laughs) It started out of pure stubbornness, which is great. Without necessarily meaning to, I think we found this quite interesting niche. No, we did some
1: stuff, and the fact that it's invisible means it (laughs) worked.
2: I think art
0: is
1: encoded knowledge and uh, experience. At that time, we were really fascinated by the whole transmedia concept.
0: That was it, not the time-travelling robot
2: idea that we had.
0: Hello, and welcome to Technique. I am Sam Fry and this is the podcast where we speak to artists about technology. Today I'm recording in April 2020, in the middle of the COVID-19 pandemic, from my own little hideaway, my home in South East London. (laughs) I sound like I'm reading this to the people of a dystopian future, but in reality, as I record this, we are around six weeks into this period of isolation in the UK. And while it's strange to still be at home so much, it's becoming a bit of a new normal. Yet today's interview was recorded around a month ago. At that point, the situation was feeling very new indeed. One big change in the world over the last few weeks is the increase in video or Skype calls. This interview follows in that vein as my co-host Richard F. Adams spoke from his home in the UK to the home of Professor Graham Harmon. Who is based in southern california graham is a professor of philosophy here he is explaining where he does his teaching
2: well i'm now a distinguished professor of philosophy at the southern california institute of architecture in los angeles SCIARC for short we're in a converted train station in the eastern side of downtown los angeles the school was founded by hippie architects in the early 1970s who had all quit en masse from cal polytechnic Uh, and started their own school in Santa Monica. It's moved around a few times since then. And since 2000, we've been in downtown Los Angeles on the east side in what is called the Arts District.
0: Sounds cool, right? So today's episode is primarily a conversation about philosophy, art, technology, and in particular, Graham Harmon's speciality, Object-Oriented Ontology. What is Object-Oriented Ontology? Well, that's easy for you to say. But it is a good question, and it is indeed how this interview starts.
1: The thing you're sort of known for, and if you Google you, you find you talking at the ICA in London and various other places about this, is this notion of object-oriented ontology. It would be really great if you could sort of start by introducing what OOO is.
2: By the way, I simply stole the term object-oriented from computer science. My father actually knows quite a bit more about object-oriented programming than I do, so he had some books lying around the house, and I, when I visited them, I had a look at those. And there are some similarities, but mostly I simply stole the name.
1: Well, why did you steal the name, then, with relation to that? Because I know, obviously, you're looking into the nature of objects and, and reality, if you like, versus non-reality, I guess,
2: or being? Sure. There's a philosophical context to this idea, of course. The first thing you want to do in philosophy, that you have to do in philosophy, is to talk about everything in some sense. You have to have a global perspective. It doesn't mean we're experts on everything, far from it, but it means you have to account for everything. In engineering, you don't have to think about art. In art, you don't have to think about politics necessarily, you can. Uh, In economics, you don't have to think about microbiology But philosophy at least has to have some idea of where everything fits. And the most general term you can use is object. There are other terms possible. You can talk about units or things or entities. The reason I chose the term object is because that was the term of choice in the Austrian school of philosophy of the late 1800s, led by Franz Brentano. This eventually led to phenomenology, Edmund Husserl and to his star student Martin Heidegger who are better known than uh, Bentano to the public. And so I was simply inspired by their way of looking at objects as the most universal concept that can be applied to everything. Of course, modern philosophy draws a sharp distinction between objects and subjects, which means thinking humans. Whereas my approach is that humans are simply very interesting objects. We have capabilities that other objects don't have. We have political rights that other objects may not have. But yet we are—we should still be considered as objects, philosophically. There's no reason to start with this distinction that we have humans on one side and everything else in the universe on the other. So I needed the term objects to refer to the global subject matter of philosophy.
1: To a layman like myself, in terms of looking at philosophy and the bits I have read and studied, it does seem like it is a very human-looking, outward-centered thing, rather than, say, a systemic thing. Because one of the things I push... A lot of work is systems thinking, where you start to talk about everything and their relationship rather than a particular goal. Yes. I wouldn't say it's the same by any means on this, but it feels like it's traveling down the same route, roughly.
2: Yes, and once we've secured the universal subject matter, which is that everything's an object, one of the things that often happens with objects is people confuse objects with ways of knowing them. But obviously, there's a difference between an object and any way of knowing it. And specifically, I hold that there are only two kinds of knowledge. Uh, if somebody asks you what something is, there are really only two kinds of answers you can give. One of them is you can say what it's made of. The other is you can say what it does. So if you ask me what water is, I can tell you that it's made of hydrogen and oxygen, or I can say that it's that's working downward, or you can work upward and say that it's used to quench thirst, it's used to put out fires.
1: Okay.
2: So those are the two different kinds of reductions you can do, a downward one and an upward one. And the problem is that both of those maneuvers lose something. For example, if you try to explain a thing by saying what it's made of, this is useful information, but you're losing what we call emergence. You're losing the fact that water has properties that hydrogen and oxygen do not. Uh, In some cases, the opposite properties. For example, quenching fire, whereas hydrogen and oxygen both fuel fire. So you you can't simply decompose a thing into its elements and think that you've exhausted the the subject. And the same when you look at the uses of a thing. The French philosopher Merleau-Ponty says, for example, that the house is not the house viewed from nowhere, but the house viewed from everywhere, as if a house were simply the sum of all the possible views one could have on it. Of course, that gets uh, things backwards, because the house has to exist in order for there to be views on it, mm. and not vice versa. And so there's a sense in which there's a certain je ne sais quoi in the things that is not reducible to all the possible interactions we can have with them. There's something more. What we are looking at, therefore, is something that's in between those two forms of knowledge. Another way of putting it is that knowledge is always a literalization of the world. You are you are trying to reduce a thing to a sum total of properties that it actually has, whereas reality itself is non-literal, because reality itself resists any particular description or knowledge we can have of it. And this is why indirect access to things is so important. And art is one of the areas where this is most obvious. It would be very hard to create a literalist artwork, I would say impossible. To take something and explain what it's made of and explain what it does and say that's my artwork.
1: Is that what okay. you're talking about in the book about Greenberg and the literalism and. Yes. Where you're talking exactly. about minimalism actually going down that route very much to say this is a square, this is a piece of canvas, this is paint.
2: Well, that is Michael Fried's interpretation. Yeah. I'm not sure I agree with his critique of minimalism. I was simply in the book trying to understand the reasons he had for having such a negative attitude towards minimalism. I think we'll get into this a little later today if we talk about tech art. Yeah. Different way of looking at it than the literal one.
1: It is interesting, though, isn't it? Because actually it does seem that a lot of that thought of Fried's has perver- pervaded, actually. But on the other hand, you can look at a square of pink paint on off his canvas and just think, wow, that's beautiful because of its yes. simplicity and elegance. And it can actually make you feel better. Yes, I don't know anymore what I f- know about paintings. It's is valid. But... So talk to me a again about that literalism. Go a little bit further on that, because I'm sort of interested in that. If we're not talking about the Freed's interpretation of that, what are we talking about?
2: Well, literalism, one way to define it is the idea that a thing simply is a bundle of qualities. This is David Hume's philosophy, the idea that there are no objects, really. There are simply bundles of qualities that go together. And the way I read phenomenology in the 20th century is as an anti humean movement, because what you find in phenomenology is the idea that the object precedes the qualities. So uh, Edmund Husserl's primary insight, uh, or at least his first insight, is the idea that, say you hold an apple in your hand, that apple is constantly changing. There's, you know, the constant alteration in the amount and angle of sunlight, in the mood of the person who holds the apple in their hand, the apple, I can move it further away from my body or closer to my body with my hand. Yet in all those cases, we still think of it as the same apple. We don't think that because the qualities are shifting from one second to the next that we're actually dealing with different but closely related apples. It's actually the same apple in tension with surface qualities. And so the route to opposing literalism is the idea that a thing and its qualities, there's a gap between them. There's a permanent gap between the thing and its qualities. And I talked about this in my book on the horror writer H.P. Lovecraft, Weird, uh, Weird Realism, in 2012. That Lovecraft has an unusually uh, evolved sense of this and plays on this to create interesting effects in his writing. And there's a couple of different ways he does this. Art is about accentuating the rift between things and their qualities such that the object becomes inaccessible. The qualities are still there, but the object seems to somehow retreat to a distance from us and become something that is a kind of shadowy puppet master that controls its surface qualities without being directly accessible in its own right. And not only does art deliteralize itself in this way, but I argue that philosophy does this as well. Uh, philosophy is often considered by many another branch of the sciences, which it really isn't. Uh, philosophy is not about the production of knowledge. Socrates is very clear about this. He never knows anything. Uh, he can, he's never been anyone's teacher. The only thing he knows is that he knows nothing. Socrates is the professor of ignorance and. Philosophy, of course, comes from the Greek word philosophia, which means the love of wisdom, not wisdom. He says that only a god could have wisdom. The best we can do is desire it, to be moving towards it. So philosophy and the arts are more closely related than modern philosophers like to think. Modern philosophy, since Descartes in the 1600s, is essentially the effort to turn philosophy into a science, which is like trying to turn a globe into a two-dimensional map. You can do it, but you are inherently distorting the size of... And the shape of the countries and you have to be aware of that and this is what happens when you try to literalize uh, something that's inherently non-literal and we see a lot of examples of this in everyday communication one easy way is if you look at threats for example the, f- the famous case of the godfather saying i'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse yeah, 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 this is more than any specific threat if he had said in the movie if he doesn't give my friend the part in the film, I'm going to cut off his horse's head and throw it in his bed at night. That's grotesque, but it's not nearly as threatening as saying, I'm going to make you an offer you can't refuse. The, uh, the and, of-
1: and what he's saying is actually, he's not saying literally what he's going to do, what he's speaking right. before that is explaining or conveying a whole set of qualities.
2: That's right. Another example would be jokes. A joke is immediately ruined as soon as you literalize it and explain the steps. <laughs> Indeed, yeah. So. I've got several examples I use in my lectures. One of them, uh, you, can, you can ask, how many surrealists does it take to screw in a light bulb? Have you heard this one? Uh, yes. <laughs> yes. The answer, of course, is fish. The fish. Now, imagine, imagine your child is there and says, Daddy, I don't get the joke, and you have to explain it to them. And you have to explain to them that surrealists like to put incongruous objects in paintings. And isn't fish a very unexpected and incongruous answer to the question of screwing in a light bulb, which should be a number rather than a, a noun that, that came from the blue? Now, you've explained the joke, but you've ruined it as a joke. The whole point of the joke is that it leaves that unstated. It leaves that jump unstated. The same is true of non-literal discourses such as criticism in the sense of food criticism, art criticism, wine criticism. Uh, Daniel Dennett, who's one of the most uh, openly reductive philosophers in the United States, has a, an interesting article where he makes fun of wine tasting. He, he imagines a wine taster sipping from a glass and saying, a flamboyant and velvety Pinot, but lacking in stamina. Dennett's approach is to mock this and and call it ridiculous and pretentious and say all you need to do to to taste the wine is to pour it in a machine, and the machine will analyze the chemical formula of the wine. So convert the taste of the wine into knowledge. Now, you gain something from that, but you also lose something. There's a reason wine tasters are poetic and indirect. They're doing aesthetic writing in its own right. They're creating a kind of artwork when they do wine criticism. Now, yes, it can lead to pretentious garbage, but I would simply say that pretension is the risk we run in the arts and humanities. Pretension is not one of the risks of the sciences. They have other risks, such as dogmatism and narrow mindedness. Yeah, indeed. But not pretension. That's that's unique to us because we are required to use indirect discourse, communicate things indirectly, and that means sometimes people can hide the fact that they have no idea what they're talking about. But there are virtues to this method of communication as well. The virtue of being able to hint at things. The classical thinkers all knew this. There's a classical tradition of rhetoric, and rhetoric today has been condemned to the status of mere rhetoric, that you're merely deviously persuading people, whereas any honest person simply makes clear propositional statements and tells you how things are. In Aristotle's definition, rhetoric has to do with what he calls enthymemes, which are things that are known without being stated. And a large part of communication is about this. So Aristotle gives the example of a speaker saying, this man here has been three times crowned with laurel, which is confusing to us, but but to any Greek this means the man has won the Olympic Games three times. But that's much more powerful than saying this man who has won the Olympics three times. To say something that everyone knows without having to spell it out is often a, a more powerful way of, of communication.
1: I was talking to talking to someone just recently about the differences, for instance, between the U.S. And, and British English, and the way that it's actually quite hard to pass diplomatic English exams if you want to be a diplomat from another country, because it's very difficult to understand British English. In the way that we tend to say something that actually means the opposite like in a social situation people might say you must come to dinner and they mean don't come to dinner in my experience of americans is they're much more direct and they tend to mean it so i think i had it described somewhere as low versus high context
2: communication or something i think that's true and i'm glad you told me that because i'd probably show up to dinner if I <laughs> no um,
1: not everybody in england but it came from a friend who took the diplomatic exams and failed who can speak Ah. perfectly good English, and it was this fact that we, at those levels of society, tend to say one thing with another
2: meaning. It's very interesting, and there's also a lot of understatement in British communication. Sure and I remember my first time in England, spring break in 1990-91, my first year of graduate school. This was just a couple of years after the Lockerbie bombing. I had been in Italy, but I was flying back to the United States out of London, Heathrow, and this very well-mannered gentleman was my security questioner at Heathrow, and he began asking me all these questions about, what is Christmas like in Italy? And I began answering the questions, and then he asked me about whether other people had had packed my luggage. That was fairly new in those days. Mm. And at some point, he simply asked, do you understand why I'm asking you these questions? And I simply nodded. It seemed like the appropriate thing to do. <laughs> Whereas in the United States, it would have been overstated. It would have, They would have spelled everything out.
1: Oh, no, I've had the the same going into the States where I got there and they said, are you here on Business or Pleasure? And I went, well, actually, I was spending two weeks on business and two weeks on holiday and vacation. It doesn't fit. And I went, well, I don't know, I'm doing this. And he just went, just answer the question, you know. (laughs) Oh. (laughs) Right. But, you know, it is interesting, those differences. And I think I don't quite know why they've emerged. I think Japanese is very formal like that as well, in that they'll say one thing and mean another. Going back to your sort of metaphors about, what you know, the properties things have, there's something in the book about a candle that you use as a metaphor, a teacher and a candle?
2: Yes, that was simply a, a piece of doggerel verse I found on Google. It's tried to analyze how the metaphor works. A teacher is like a candle, or was it a candle is like a teacher? I don't remember.
1: Like a candle, because they light the way and they... Give lightness in darkness and all of that business, I guess.
2: Yes, the, the reason for my choosing that example in that book is that previously I had, I had been using examples of high art metaphor from Homer and Dante and okay. these sorts of people. I wanted to show that it also works for fairly banal metaphors.
1: I suppose people like myself, we, we spend our lives making things. You know, I've spent the last three years communicating trauma and things through work. And I'm layering this in, but of course, I'm not being explicit. If you look at the work, it's clearly disturbed. <laughs> but it isn't saying, look at me, I've got trauma. It's purely an image, and you take it as it is, or you don't. If you get the message, you get it. If you don't,
2: you don't. Send me a link to these I, works. Oh,
1: I will, I will. I've exhibited them a couple of times. But actually, the biggest problem I have, just on a side issue, is the dealers don't seem to know how to deal with it because of the type of work it is. Because it's not real. Not real paint. An artist
2: once told me that uh, learning how to sell things is the gallerist's Problem, not the artists. He was very carefree about it. I've seen works from some of these artists that I can't imagine how you're going to sell them, and uh, the artists simply told me that's not their problem. <laughs> the the <laughs> galleries figure out a way to make things. <laughs> You've saleable. got
1: to go the galleries first, that's the thing. Oh, I see. <laughs> yeah, you know, I'm very much an outsider from that point of view. And I, I frankly I haven't got the energy to chase them. But it's uh, interesting that, you know, in a sense, reading this connected with some of my work. In that I've had people saying, how you know, dealers saying how great it is, but they can't sell it because it's not real. And yet it looks like a painting.
2: Is the idea that people are used to thinking of computer images as things that can be freely downloaded and shared? That was part the- of it.
1: That was part mm. of it. But, but the fact is I only make one of these and that's it. It's just interesting. This is what really grabbed me with, with, with your book. You are talking about a slightly different view of reality that I think re- resonated with my daytime computer work as well. Because when we create an artifact for deep tech, we separate the properties from the function from this, that, and the other. We only combine them at runtime, if you like. And, and that seemed to me a similar sort of approach you were taking to your analysis of art, in effect. And, th- and that's presumably why I thought the object-oriented thing stuck. Talk to me about how you see what your philosophical views, how they work with tech art.
2: All right. Actually, this is, this is quite timely because I, not only have I just published art and objects, I'm also working on architecture and objects, companion piece for a different publisher. And what I'm seeing there is that architectural theory is very rich and, and voluminous at this point, but it got a very late start. Vitruvius is really the only surviving ancient authority we have on architecture. That's simply an accident of history. Not much survived about architecture. And this was known throughout the Middle Ages, but it didn't really inspire comparable works until the Italian Renaissance. So we have this strange situation That Vitruvius in 25 BC is the first treatise on architecture we have, and Alberti in the 1400s is the second. Wow. I'm getting back to your question here in a slow way. Both Vitruvius and Alberti we were very interested in mathematical proportion as the key to architecture, whether it was the proportions of the human body as being that which the building is designed to serve or more abstract platonic mathematical proportions as being the secret to creating great architecture. It wasn't until a bit later that people started pointing to the je ne sais quoi or I know not what's in architecture, that there's something not quite rationalizable about architecture. And this was a largely British movement coming through gardening theory aesthetically very important uh, the idea of having these wild untamed natural gardens which starts in the late 1600s in england and it comes out of china ironically a guy named william temple who was a, a british diplomat to china for some years talked about the strange eeriness of these chinese gardens and this eventually over the course of a century led to the idea of the sublime in burke and Kant. the idea there's something that's beyond rational comprehension in the arts And what's interesting is you have some architects who work along those lines, but there's something hidden in the object that we can't quite put our finger on. But then there's the other kind. You have, especially in the 20th century, a return to this rationalist idea. So, for example, Le Corbusier doesn't really talk about something hidden and picturesque. He talks about beauty being a series of relationships between simple shapes. So I always think of the Sydney Opera House, even though Corbusier isn't the designer, seems to fit his theory very well. You have a series of shell-like shapes that are arranged slightly asymmetrically. It makes it easy for the public to remember, and it creates a kind of tension between those autonomous shapes. You can't really say there's a hidden depth there. Now, the reason I'm bringing this up in connection with tech arts is that uh, tech art is, in a sense, also an art that seems to be confined to the surface because technical objects – like the mathematical objects of Le Corbusier's architecture, there's not a lot of part-whole depth to those things the way there are with natural objects. Mm. Right? That if you pull something out of nature or you carve a piece of marble, there's already a part-whole complexity to the piece of marble or the wood because you're working with something that was pre-existent. Whereas in the case of an architectural design of simple geometrical shapes in a certain relation, or in the case of something programmed onto a computer, you're dealing with something that's designed from the outset simply to be what it is functionally in that aesthetic situation. So what that means is that we don't necessarily need to look at the depth in the thing itself. We need to be looking at the relation between ourselves and the thing for where the aesthetic effect is happening. In art and objects, I argue that this always happens in art anyway, because unlike Fried's early claim, the beholder is always there for the artwork. There's no artwork without a beholder, and therefore we are always an ingredient of the artwork. don't want to digress too much, but there's this French philosopher, Jean Baudrillard. The Baudrillard is often... Thought of simply as the philosopher of simulation, that nothing is is real, everything's a simulacrum. And there's definitely that side in him, but there's the other side of him, which is the seduction side. Seduction is his other major theme, which is that the simulacrum seduces us precisely through its emptiness and the, the void behind it. And so, in a way, Baudrillard is more about our relation to these images. And this is what I would be inclined to think about tech art, just as with the kind of geometrical architecture we see again in the 20th century, that it becomes more about our relation with those transparent surfaces, and that this is where the aesthetic event is happening. It's happening more between us and the thing than in the heart of the thing itself. That's how I would approach tech art.
1: You know, I constantly get asked, how did you do that? What software did you use? What this? What that? To my mind, it doesn't really matter. I'm starting with a base and I'm, I'm putting a few algorithms around it and I'm, I'm sort of playing around. But actually, what I want is to upset people. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> well, trauma way. I want to sort of convey some of the trauma I felt through the work. And to me, my work lives outside the front of the canvas. Mm, it's almost that's... like we've comp- completed a journey that started with us in the Renaissance looking sort of through a window into the canvas, out through the modernists where the canvas became the thing, and sort of we're out the front of it now.
2: That's a very nice way of putting it out the front of the canvas. Yeah, that, that's sort of what I was trying to get at with my mention of Baudrillard. The idea that our interaction with the thing it becomes what's important. Yeah, trauma is one way to do that.
1: I think people can relate to subjects like that, and I think once you explore things like that, they get it very quickly because they've all felt trauma at some point. You know, most people have. That whole Baudrillard about the simulacra, I'd never really thought about that, but I have called my own work simulacra. I don't know where that came from. It just felt like I was making simulacra you know, in the end, using new painting techniques which are computer driven. it's weird and I think this is where the dealers don't get it. Let's go a step further because actually we've come out of the canvas, but you also took right. on virtual reality where we're almost re-entering the canvas. What are the applications of your ways of thinking to things like virtual reality?
2: I haven't written specifically on virtual reality that I recall, but objects in object-oriented ontology don't necessarily need to be coming from nature, and so a a virtual object is still an object. One of the most interesting things I've read on this was actually from J.G. Ballard, where Ballard talks about how the role of the artist has changed today. I don't know, maybe you know this this statement. Uh, He said, in the past, the artist's job was to create fictions, but now we are surrounded by fictions. We're surrounded by advertising and propaganda and uh, video games. The mission of the artist today is to create a reality that holds those fictions together. It makes them believable because anyone can create a, a fake image now. And there's Photoshop and there's all kinds of tools available even to the average person on the street to do this.
1: Well, I mean, if you talk and- to ad- advertisers, they'll talk to you in a city like London, you're seeing eleven, twelve thousand 12,000 messages a day. Really? Look around. Yeah, yeah. That's the number I had quoted at me. And when you think about it, that's an enormous amount of stories coming at you. But then you, you know you commute to work on a train. There are adverts on the trains. There are at the stations. You're listening to music. There's an advert. A podcast. An ad comes in, and that's just on a 30-minute commute. And then you get into town, and there are boards everywhere, and what have you. And when you think about it, the upside or downside of that is. They said to me that people only tend to remember three or four of them, even though they're bombarded with these messages. And and I think that Ballard Court's absolutely true in a sense that, to me, a lot of art that I've seen around at the moment holds very true to that, in that it's pulling a story out from existing stuff. So Banksy or A-Way or they seem to be taking very ordinary things and making something Absolutely terrific from them. Yes. Without having that necessity of craft, if you like, that seemed to have dominated for 400 years. You've got to be a trained painter and all of that. That interests me.
2: Your number 11 or 12,000 images also interests me because just the other day I read something I'd never heard before, which is that we have about 60,000 thoughts per day. Ah course you only remember a few of those as well at the end of the day what is it that makes something stick out and if if our 60,000 thoughts include 11 or 12,000 advertisements that's really something tells you where we are now and with augmented reality coming down the pipe uh, my brother happens to be an augmented reality developer and so I've tested some pretty good technology and it's amazing what they can already do and soon enough we won't be even looking at an urban landscape we'll be looking at an augmented urban landscape with information superimposed on it
1: what's happening is We're now in front of the canvas, if you like, metaphorically, but the canvas is now swallowing us up again. Yes, it it is. And I I don't know how to deal with that philosophically, to be honest.
2: I don't think any of us do. We're just beginning to struggle with it.
1: So if you talk about augmented reality, philosophically, how does that stand? So much of our reality is augmented, isn't it, anyway?
2: Well, in a sense, it already is because of the advertisements, as you pointed out. And in a sense, a city is already augmented reality. I was talking to my colleague, David Rue, at school yesterday. He's the one who got me into architecture. Uh-huh. And he was talking about how you know the human is the entity with imagination that can create images the most readily. Architecture is the set of images that gets taken most easily for reality. Um, right now, I'm sitting in an artificial building as you know that are as well and i'm on the fourth floor of an apartment complex in long beach and i'm taking it for reality it's, it's kind of fantastic that i'm sitting up this high in the air just a few, few few tens of thousands of years ago i would have been in a mud hut at best and of course we're talking over an internet connection that's only a few decades old and this is our reality even though this would have been sheer fantasy just a few decades ago and so, yes, in that sense, our reality is already augmented. The humans have created a kind of counter nature or counter environment. I'm still reeling a bit from the, my first experience of advanced augmented reality technology at my brother's home over Christmas. It was a headset. Set up as a kind of video game where these these robotic spacecraft were coming out of the walls. They were literally tunneling out of the walls and attacking me. And I had to turn and point and click at them to kill them. And of course, everyone in the room around me is laughing because they can't see any of this. I look like a fool with this metallic headset on, turning around, gyrating, snapping my fingers because these these robot spacecraft are trying to kill me. And then there's an X-ray vision component where you can see where these spacecraft are secretly hiding from you in different parts of the room it was so easy to be sucked into that world and at a certain point I was relieved to take off the headset it was it was too intense the adrenaline rush was too great and soon enough uh, simply walking down the street is going to be like this I mean already there's um, oh there was Pokemon go which I never oh. tried because I out of the age group and this led to very rude behaviour like people chasing Pokemons into Auschwitz and things of this sort also dangerous behaviour people chasing Pokemons into you know near cliffs and things of that sort
1: I think when that when that uh, was at its peak I was working at the Royal Shakespeare Company in Stratford-upon-Avon I actually got news of a group of people running round on the grass outside the theatre and it just became bigger and bigger the group and it was literally one of those Pokemon Go things
2: oh my gosh <laughs> it, I thought that was going to be a permanent part of the landscape but it seems to have diminished at least for now, right? Is anyone still doing that?
1: Yeah, they're still playing it, but it's very much a limited thing. It, it is exhausting. And this oh. is I wonder, you know, when you, you go fully into AR because I did a contract at Microsoft, so I spent a little bit of time at uh, Microsoft Xbox, actually. And mm. I, I had a go with the HoloLens, the thing you're talking about, probably. And, right. and actually it is quite exhausting. And, and I saw, effectively, a, a demo of a Windows desktop floating in the air where you could just push buttons and do things. And this is utterly exhausting exhausting i i can't see it lasting in some sense other than for entertainment Mm -hmm. unless it's something that's put on buildings specifically on entrances on signs i don't know i I mean and also culturally yes this extra layer of information i mean i know over the years people have been working on adding layers you know from everything geocaching you know right up to ar they've been working on adding extra information but i don't know anything that's really stuck like you say it seems to have sort of things seem to die a death after the initial rush and so i don't know if culturally we can handle this
2: that's one thought i have the other thought i have is that perhaps people who grow up with it will handle it and being a professor i i deal with people in the they're not millennials anymore they're whatever they're called generation z or zoomers zoomers they seem to have a very different relation to technology from the one i have And perhaps they are able to internalize all these things and change what seems to be normal for the human race in terms of information processing. I don't know, it could go either way.
0: that was this month's episode thank you so much to Graham Harmon for featuring it makes you really want to engage more in philosophy right if you want to find out more about Graham you can always find him on Twitter, here's how
1: Professor Graham Harman, thank you very very much. How can people contact you? Is that via Twitter?
2: Twitter or they can they can email me if they have a more involved question. My email address is easy enough to find by googling. Oh, and on Twitter you're Dr. Zamalek. Dr. Zamalek. DR and then Zamalek, which is the Cairo neighborhood and football club. I lived in Zamalek neighborhood, that's why I chose that handle. Z A M A L E K. Thank
0: you again to Graham and to Richard for this episode. We are still trying to put these Technique podcasts out once a month, even if it means recording more online. So do get in contact with us on Twitter at Technique UK if you have ideas for artists we should speak to. We will then be back again in a month's time with a new episode. In the meantime, please stay safe and take care of yourself. Goodbye. Design thinking has exploded into the workplace of the 21st century,
1: putting humans at the heart of design. Or does it? Isn't it just the post-it-note workshops? More importantly though, where did it come from? How did it become such a massive industry? And where on earth is it going? Is design
0: thinking what is taught in design schools? And can it be used as a philosophy for the
1: future? Find out more as we, Richard Adams and Sam Fry, explore these ideas with experts in the field on our first Technique mini-series about design thinking.
0: Subscribe to this podcast so that you don't miss an episode.